Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of Word Designer. Today we are here with Nick and Gray, the founders of Decibels. I'm very happy to have you here today, guys. Thank you. Very happy Thanks to for be having here. us. Maybe let's start with Nick first. How did your journey with design start? Wow, with design? <laughs> I mean, like, I, um, when I was at school, so high school kind of time, 14, we had the option to study one kind of less classic academic thing. Some people did music, some people did maybe languages. Uh, I had the option to do design. And that was the first time that I started doing that in an academic sense um, and kind of fell in love with doing design back at school. And so I ended up doing design at university as well. And so it's more kind of industrial product design. And um, through university, I actually started working on this Decibels project at that time. Um, I guess we can talk about that in a moment. Um, but after I finished doing industrial design at university, I decided I wanted to get into digital design a bit. So I'm very fascinated with the psychology element of design. And I think user experience design and how you build software applications is maybe that little bit more uh, associated with psychology. And so for the last seven years, I've been focused uh, on building software products. And um, that's been fascinating and great. And now from a year ago, last January, I've been now focusing back on my hardware roots and I'm excited to be here again. Awesome. And Gray, what about you? Because I know that you're on a different spectrum of design than Nick. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm an industrial designer, so more like, like physical products kind of stuff. Um, and I actually started out, I think actually the inspiration also came like during the high school time for me. So I, I remember in the U.S. when you apply to universities, you have to say like the thing you want to specialize in. Um, and I had no idea. And then when I was 17, I took this course called engineering design, where basically you just like came up with ideas and like built them. And it was like a super fun course, like really inspiring class. And um so I thought I thought what I wanted to do was engineering. So I got an engineering degree and like uh, like pretty much mechanical engineering. And then my last my last year, I took a course, industrial design course, and I realized that was what I wanted to do the whole time. But no one told me that's what it was called. Um, so when I got graduated, I started working in product development. And then I over a period of a few years switched into industrial design and I went back to school and got a master's in industrial design. Um, and I've been working um, as a product designer since like product design development since around like 2012. And I love it. I love designing products and making experiences and the whole the whole journey. Sometimes sometimes I hate it <laughs> when I feel like I'm not doing very well. But most of the time <laughs> overall, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So. The question to both of you. So if you had a billion dollars to work on any problem, any project in the world, what would you work on and why would it be decibels? <laughs> Good ending to that that question. Yeah, so I mean, um, decibels, like for me is maybe, should we give a bit of context around what decibels is? Um, so decibels yeah, is something very kind of close to my heart. And we are 
building hearing wearables for people who don't want to wear hearing aids. Uh, I needed hearing aids my whole life and I never wanted to wear them, always hated it. In fact, I completely avoided wearing them the whole way through school. It wasn't until around the age of 19 or 20 when I finally decided to wear them. And the biggest reason why I didn't want to wear them was because they are these medical products that we associate with disability, with aging. And this is something that just I did not want to have visibly on the side of my face, inside of my head, that kind of told the world that I was disabled. This, I would rather try to avoid all the awkward situations of not hearing people than wear something which I felt made me look like someone I didn't want to be seen at. Um, so we are looking at redesigning, completely redesigning hearing technology, how you look at hearing tech, not as a medical product, but instead as a lifestyle product. I think a good similarity there might be with eyeglasses. Uh, glasses used to be kind of this visual aid that people didn't want to wear, where today people will wear glasses that don't even have lenses in purely because they want to be seen wearing them, because there's a meaning of wearing glasses. Maybe they kind of elicit sophistication or being a bit smarter, things like this. And I think it's a really important kind of lesson that you can take from products that the meaning of a product can be a little bit detached from the actual function of it. And I think this is what we're really trying to toy with, with hearing technology, that the function of it is that it improves your ability to hear. But what does it mean? And I think if you really look into that, you've got the possibility of redesigning, reshaping, and reforming how people's view of hearing technology can change from a medical product to something that we actually want to wear. So that's what Decibels is. And uh, we super excited to be working on it now. If we had a billion dollars, I think what I would like to do, and Gray and I have spoken about this, is not just focus on what we're focusing on now, which is we want to make hearing tech for people who really could benefit from hearing tech more accessible, more available, um, and generally desirable. But our ears are actually not designed for the world that we live in today. It's incredibly loud, incredibly noisy. Being in a bar or a restaurant can be difficult for people, even if you have perfect hearing. And so I think if we look at hearing enhancement as a general concept, this is really where I see the future of this technology, that in the coming years, regardless of your hearing ability, you'll have access to hearing tech, which can drastically improve the way you communicate with people and live your life. Now, we're on kind of the cusp of really interesting change in technology where people, yeah, who already have pretty good hearing can benefit from audio enhancement in the real world. It's not quite perfected yet, but there are some cool companies building really cool software to separate speech from background noise. And I think once this becomes a bit more widely available, this is really where we want to go. So not just from hearing enhancement for people who need it uh, in a maybe more medical sense, but hearing enhancement for everyone, because in many ways we all need it. And I think if we had all the money in the world, this would be the direction we would go. Yeah, like that's the thing that this technology world is developing so fast. And at the same time, we are humans and we can't do that. And we have to somehow adapt. And that's why where tech can also help us. So, Ray, yeah, what's your exactly. approach to that from an industrial standpoint? Yeah, uh, just, just to add to what Nick said a bit, 
I totally agree. While he was talking, I got an idea for a new feature. I live next to like this grade school, and when the kids go outside, they sound like they're making human sacrifices. So if I could filter the screaming out, that would be a great new feature for us. Um, but yeah, like I mean, so I think Nick Nick has this amazing story of how he got to where he was, and the the question for me would be why why did I jump on the project with Nick and um, as a product designer, I totally see like what what I do as my job is basically like communicate with people through products in a way, like either like want to say something with how I design it or all this. And I think what's really cool about this thing that Nick and now I now me are doing is um, we're basically trying to change how people view this whole thing of like hearing hearing impairment or not having perfect hearing. And just trying to change like the whole point of view on that through through this product and through through all the cool videos Nick mostly Nick's making. I'm I'm jumping in a bit more too, um, but yeah, it's it's pretty fun and exciting, and seems like a good chance to do some good while doing something super cool. Yeah, and what are the biggest challenges that you encounter with this project? Biggest challenges. <laughs> I think that, I mean, I, I think it's important to say that designing hearing technology is not simple. I think uh, it's not simple on a technical level, on the, the hardware sense, but it's also not simple on a kind of design and ergonomic sense. Gray and I have been like talking for a long time about how we can design the perfect hearable that just fits well. And I think this has been a real challenge just because ears are weird. <laughs> ears are so weird. They, even on one person, both ears can be slightly different sizes and slightly different shapes. The angle that the ear canal goes might be different on both ears on the same person, uh, let alone yeah. all these other different people. I even found some studies that say that your ear shape is more unique than your fingerprint. So it's really like, it's like a great little design challenge we gave ourselves here. <laughs> yeah, we really kind of, it, it's a lot harder. And I, I think um, that I think there's a reason why you see a lot of earbuds and headphones, which will follow the same kind of style and the same kind of shape, because they've kind of found a shape that works. Um, but we're really trying to do something that is quite unique from a form factor sense, because we don't want it to look like headphones we don't want people to think that you are listening to music while you're talking to someone and kind of perceived as rude so we're in a bit of a tricky situation where we're kind of having to go away from what the norm is for ear related products and design something completely new but then we are putting ourselves out there in this crazy world of ears basically <laughs> yeah the, the ergonomics of it are crazy but i think we're we're figuring it out we're we're getting we're we're still working through it. I think it'll kind of be one of those never ending things, but I don't know if the, I mean, this podcast probably doesn't have video, but I don't know if you see me like keep pressing my AirPods back into my ears because the stupid things don't stay there. <laughs> and like how many, how much money and resources does Apple have? Uh, so it's, yeah. it's definitely a, a tricky thing. The one yeah, thing on this project that I, I'm actually surprised wasn't as big of a challenge is I think the the most important thing we're trying to do is like make hearing aids kind of cool or acceptable or um, like uh, 
not stigmatized or whatever you want to call it. And the reception of that has been pretty great so far. I think like yeah. a lot of people, especially people that like currently have to wear hearing some kind of hearing device are like, oh yeah, like this is what I've been waiting for. And um, why, why has no one done it? I think like getting the momentum to change the, the conversation around hearing devices, that's, that's been like way less of a challenge than I thought it would be. So that's, that's, yeah. and I think that's really the, like the most important part too. So that's, that's what I'm pretty happy about. So you would like to guys move this, um, you know, earring devices into the um, desired jewelry, right? Basically that um, piece of art, which um, everyone would like to, you know, have it, right? That's the goal. Yeah, to an extent, I think like, we, we can kind of separate products into maybe many different categories, but three are interesting for us. Uh, you have medical products, you have consumer products, and then you have maybe like jewelry kind of products. And we are trying to take hearing aids from being just a medical functional product, which only does a thing, to going further in the direction, somewhere between kind of jewelry-esque thing and consumer product kind of thing mm -hmm. i think they don't it doesn't quite fit in each one in one category perfectly but i think there are elements of these different areas that we can take to really kind of create a new product category and i think thinking of hearing aids in the same way that you look at kind of designer eyewear is a good way to think about it that of course it has a function it serves its purpose but people choose glasses a particular pair of glasses because of how they look to other people. Yeah. Uh, they all do functionally the same thing, but there's the element of choice, which makes it a personal product uh, and something that's kind of desirable, not just for the person wearing it, but also maybe secondhand users as well, people who see your product from the outside. Yeah, exactly. It's like the difference between carry around, like if you carry like a, a screwdriver or a flashlight in your pocket versus wearing a wristwatch, you know? Like you, you have a smartphone there. The time is on your smartphone. You don't need the smartwatch, but you're still wearing the smartwatch. You know, sometimes <laughs> my watch battery dies and I don't even notice because it's like, I'm just, I'm just wearing it because it kind of brings the outfit together. So I think yeah. we're like, we're, we're not fully like, uh, something that you wear because it's useless, but we're trying to, like you said, move in that direction that, um, like, why can't you wear it? Because it makes you feel a certain way. And, um, you want to look that certain way. Um, yeah. So all, ask, all open territory. Yeah. May I ask you a second question then related to the first one? So let's say that um, it, it, it's, it will be a desired um, consumer product, right? However, from the pers um, functional perspective, what's your vision um, when, I don't know, most of the people are going to wear it? How, what it will benefits for the people in, in example in the crowded um, places do you have such, such, such vision you know from the functional point of view because um, I, I guess that's um, it's more about leverage um, moving to the different level um, relationship between the people right yeah so I, I think an important thing to clarify is you know, at the beginning of this podcast we said what would we do if we had like a billion dollars and I think that is making hearing products for everyone and that's accounting for kind of different situations and all this kind of stuff and the technology in order to apply to all of those situations i don't think quite exists yet in a way which would be fantastic 
So kind of zooming back in, what are we doing now? We're building hearing aid technology for people who could really benefit from hearing aid technology. So these are people with hearing loss at the moment. Um, and so this isn't going to necessarily be um, for functioning in all of these different situations, such as really loud restaurants. It will definitely provide an, a level of benefit, but it's not going to be perfect in that stage. So our focus at the moment is reshaping how we look at hearing technology. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel when it comes to the technology at the moment, because there's a lot of really good technology out there. The big problem is that no one wears it, no one wants it. And so what we want to do is change the fact that people don't want it and turn it into something which actually becomes desirable. Now, there is a lot of work which can be done on the technology to, to continuously improve it. But for us, that's not the primary objective of what we're working on right now. But that will definitely be something that we touch on going forward. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think also we're we're focusing a bit more on the experience of just like buying and trying on and setting up hearing aids too. Um, like, so I'm I'm not a hearing aid wearer, but Nick is, and it's kind of nice that we have this dynamic because he can tell me how it currently is, and I go, oh my god, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can come up with a solution and it's something that both me like designing uh like experiences and experiences around products is something that both me and nick um know how to do which is actually we, we met working together doing stuff like that um and i think just making it like a nice like uh, enjoyable uh enjoyable experience just getting hearing aids instead of i think now it's now, like, like you could have a really great audiologist, but it's still very like medical and going to get your ears tested and this this whole like kind of like very stiff feeling thing. And I think um, I think like especially like the younger folk, the younger people are more accustomed to having like a good experience when they do something. So I think that that becomes more important um, moving forward. And it's also fun too. You know, it's fun thinking of like. How can we make somebody like want to want to try this on or want to interact with us and all that stuff? Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about the functionalities that you thought of? Because I know that there are some nice things in the backlog, so to say. The functionality. Yeah, so I mean Not, uh, nothing's final yet. Don't say anything not, too yeah. definite. <laughs> nothing's final yet, for sure. Yeah, so functionality, the important thing is, you know, for now, we are um, making, again, hearing aids in a different form factor. So what do hearing aids actually do? Hearing aids basically, um, is first, you assess your ability to hear. And everyone can hear a range of different sound frequencies from low frequencies to high frequencies. And this is like a lot of different, a lot of different types of frequencies, right? And your personal hearing ability might be that you can hear quite well in some of these frequencies, but not in other frequencies. So maybe you can hear low tones quite well, but you can't hear high tones very well. And so what hearing aids do is you, they look at the, the tones that you can hear and the tones that you can't hear, and then amplify the tones that you can't hear to the level of the other tones. So this is a way of kind of personalizing the sound that you hear around you by giving a bit more volume just to the types of sounds that you need a bit more of a boost with. So this is what we're doing 
to start with, uh, we're providing hearing enhancement of the real world around you. I think, you know, going forward, the, the, there is so much opportunity. I think when you pull things like uh, noise cancellation into the, the, the world as well, kind of, as Gray said, kind of getting rid of those sounds you don't want to hear is so much a part of, so much a part of hearing enhancement at the end of the day. And um, yeah, we don't want to promise anything quite yet. And we've got quite a focus on just delivering this first functionality, which is actually going to be beneficial for people. But going forward, there is yeah a world of opportunity about yeah. choosing the particular sounds that you might want to hit. Yeah, the possibilities are endless, basically, because when it comes to hearing, well, we use our ears every day, every time, every minute, every second. So the more functionalities yeah. we can, yeah, there's a range of functionalities that we can think of, but it's tricky to yeah, pick the ones that yeah will give the the most value to the user in the end, because you shouldn't yeah get exactly too many. like. It's most value to the user. And then also like, um, you know, we, we have this thing that has a battery that's only so big and we only have like so much size we can work with too. So it's, um, it's kind of balancing. And I'm sure this is like, like something like you guys come into all the time. Like you have like these limitations, but you have these like things you want, you want to get in there and how do you balance that out and work through it? Um, so yeah. Yeah. But period. <laughs> period. It kind of sounded like I was going to say something else, but it wasn't. <laughs> it's sometimes like that. <laughs> Nick, what did you say? What are the qualities of good design? What are the qualities of good design? Yeah, so, I mean, there are so many different qualities of good design. I think you know, we spoke before about, like, kind of what are the really interesting thing about how you make decisions like do you talk to users on a level of asking them what they want and then you build it or do you kind of not talk to users at all and kind of build what you think is the right thing to build and this is kind of based on a lot of your experience in the past um i think what i found is that a lot of really good design comes with the balance of the two i think you know that there's been some famous quotes, I think Steve Jobs said something along the lines of, don't ask people what they want because they don't know what they want. It's our job to tell people what they want. Um, And I think that's absolutely true, but to a certain extent, I think you can't just tell people what you personally want. You have to do enough research to understand what people want. Um, But it's just important, this thing that I think he's really touching on there, don't ask people what features you should build. Instead, ask people what problems they have. And then it's our job as designers to use the problem in order to create a solution. Don't rely on users to kind of prophesize what the solution should be. And that comes with just a, an element of using your intuition as well as an addition to that. Um, I think some things just feel right. And the only way you can really test if they are right is by trying it out and testing it. And I think that balance of talk to users, understand their problems and do what kind of just feels right, put them together. And often you come up with something pretty interesting. And as I've kind of gone through my design career so far, I've you know maybe started out completely on the intuition side. And I think it's a very junior approach to thinking that you just have all the answers. 
it's obviously not the case. And then I kind of thought, oh, you know, I need to talk to users all the time. And then you kind of rely too much on what people want rather than what you think people should do. So as I've kind of developed and matured a bit in my profession, I think I've coming closer towards finding the right balance of what users want and using your intuition to design something that's really meaningful. Yeah. And great. What's yeah, your take I, on I think I basically have the same, same philosophy, but I word it differently. So I do get, get rid of the crap and look for inspiration. So I, I think you, and there's also a difference between like good design and great design too, I think. So I think like Nick said, talking to the users and figuring out what their problems are and what what's wrong and trying to help solve it and then creating a solution. And like, you know, like, let's say if you're designing an interface, like getting rid of like the, the, the speed bumps to someone like flowing through like a website or something. I think there's a lot of like just getting rid of the bad stuff and like making it better. And it's a lot of like just kind of testing and testing with yourself and testing with users. And I think just doing that, getting rid of like the 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 bad parts, quote unquote, of the design, you can get to like a good design, but to get to like a, a really good or great design, you need to kind of infuse some of that inspiration or that intuition or just that something where you like the the team or designer, whoever's working on it kind of has an idea and say, oh, I really think, I really think this is going to be really good. Let's push for this. Let's put that in there and combine that with that, like, you know, getting rid of all the the junk too. And I think then you have something that's really, really great, but it's, it's also really hard to do. Like um, that intuition, I think Nick said he started his career on the intuition side, but I, I would also bet his intuition's gotten better and better as he's like grown through his design career too. Um, so I think developing that intuition is not something that happens overnight, but that's also like the, you know, like when you play a video game and like you go from level five character to level six character and you get all excited. I think that's also kind of like the addictiveness of being a designer, you know, like your skills keep go getting better and better and you keep you like you uh, you start liking more and more of the stuff you produce. I think in the beginning, like all the stuff I made, I hated everything I ever did. And it, it took me a long time to start like I would creating things and then I would see, oh, actually like. I actually like this. This is good. <laughs> so basically, it's like creating good design is easier when you have that experience. And you should get yeah, yeah, definitely just start yeah. out. Yeah. Guys, so my question, which comes to my mind is, I'm related all my life with the software, right? Um, and software, as you everyone knows, um, it's quite easy to change update right um it's because you can do that remotely um now looking at the at the devices how to make the hardware design timeless yeah, this, man, is your, this is your domain you're, oh god you're speaking my language here this is like <laughs> this is a thing that really really bugs me about um like product like creating physical products because i also I do a lot of like digital stuff as well too, or not a lot, but let's say some. So I use like digital, uh, digital like tools to create interfaces and um, like website mockups and all this kind of stuff too. And the the physical product design world is still like it's still the same as it was like twenty years ago. 
And also this thing you mentioned of like, if you create software, you can update it remotely. Um, you usually don't have that with product design. So it's a lot more like planning for a big release rather than like, let's say like if you release a software, you release like beta one, two, three, four, and then like full version one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, it's a lot more like, okay, here's this thing and this is how we're going to do it. And then maybe next year we can fix the problems. Um, so it's a lot, traditionally, it's a lot more like, uh, uh, like, I guess, risk management. So um, going through like and testing everything a thousand times before you like uh, set everything on the final production run. That being said, there's a lot of developments too in the physical hardware space, like one of them being 3D printing that are really lowering the barrier to creating a physical product. Um, so now it's feasible that you can like create something, uh, like make 10 of them and see that something's wrong and then just kind of tweak the, the file for the next 10 and then keep doing that. Um, but it's still, I wouldn't say that's the, the normal practice because everyone's basically shooting for like injection molded parts and all that stuff. That's basically like you pay someone to cut this piece of metal out and that costs you between like 10 to hundred K just for that piece of metal. And uh, yeah, so it's um, it's software definitely has a big advantage. <laughs> um, I think physical space is slowly getting there. Uh, but yeah, this is like you're bringing up such a great like pain point for me in my life. Where like I work with like Nick and stuff, you know, and he just like, oh, I'll just change like the the font on this website, and I'm like, oh, I have to change the surface on this file, and it takes me like two days to tweak it and get the stupid thing right <laughs> so it's, yeah, yeah. I, do, I do think there's like a thing about timeless design where there is another difference between software and hardware and that i think is i think our impression of what is modern is is based on what is out there and what we see and what we interact with um and because we change so much in the software world so quickly everything feels old if we don't see what is the most new thing. And a great mm. way of looking at that is look at the automotive industry. Cars have not changed much over the last 20 or 30 years. And that's because the lifetime of a car, I think is something like 15 to 17 years or something. And that means that the whole kind of hardware world moves slower in, in our perception of what is modern versus the software world as well so i do think it's kind of as much as you're able to make quicker changes with software and become the new hot thing by making the new hot thing you're making what was before the not new hot thing and, and then you're continuously um in the software world nothing really is timeless to an extent i mean so you had like skeuomorphism design. This is kind of what Apple kind of first started out with. And that was making everything in a digital world look like the real world. And that was kind of that is design style. And then I think in around 2013, they changed the Apple changed to this more flat design style. And they got rid of all of this, making things look like the real world and started creating digital interfaces, which look good and function well in the digital world because we understood that these are two separate places. We don't need to make that connection. But now you're seeing things change again. And so when I look back at flat design, I look back at skeuomorphism design, these things aren't timeless. These things are already being uh, reshaped and reworked all the time. 
you look at the hardware space, you look at some products that famous designers like Dieter Rams designed many, many years ago, decades ago. And a lot of those elements have kind of stuck around for a long time uh, and will maybe remain for a long time as well. But you're seeing shifts uh, in how that's going. And Gray and I were talking somewhat recently about the difference between minimalism and maximalism. And, you know, minimalism as like a design style feels almost timeless because it's been around for so long. But there is uh, some ideas out there that maybe this is actually going to change in years to come, that maybe designing the interior of a house isn't going to be about making it all simple and clean, but maybe having more features and more shapes and stuff going on will be the next phase. But the thing is, you can't just change everything in one go. You can't change a software platform and then everything changes. You have to change one product at a time, one sofa, one chair, one rug, one table. And this takes a long time. So the hardware world just moves a little slower, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I never thought of that. I also always wondered if it was like related to, I get a sense that, I mean, I'm also, I'm probably really biased because I'm a physical product designer, but um, I get a sense that uh, you're able to kind of connect with design things, like physical design things a bit more than like a digital interface. So like I... I have like, I bought this nice little gold bottle opener and it's like, doesn't work very well, but I love it just cause I like how it looks and it's, it's so nice and clean and it feels nice and it's kind of heavy. And I have like this like, um, illogical emotional connection to this object, which I, I haven't had with interfaces, but I also wonder if maybe in the future that will change too. But a good question for you, Nick is like, what's a trend that's like still being used right now but looks already looks old in the digital oh. world wow i mean on the spot go on the spot <laughs> all right the first thing that comes to mind is in the automotive industry as well so gray and i were actually working with a, a company in the automotive industry and looking at how interfaces inside the car are so when you kind of go into a car even if you rent a car it can be a brand new car that you're renting from the rental company but then the interface you use to set the direction and navigation feels like it's five years old it just feels so much older than some of the interfaces you've used before and um i think a lot of the reason why is because it was actually designed five years ago it takes five years to maybe take a car from an idea to being on the market and they maybe should wait until the last minute to do the in-car interface before they actually do that. Um, I don't know. That's the first thing that came to my mind, but there's definitely a lot of things out there about interaction. And this comes in the, uh, the kind of skeuomorphism sense. Usually if you have a, a way of changing a number from zero to a hundred, maybe in the real world, you have a rotational dial that you can dial from one to a hundred. But in the digital world, this circular motion is not actually very useful. Doing a circular motion on a screen doesn't feel natural. It makes more sense to do it in a straight line because it's easier for your finger to move like that. And I think this is like a pattern that still some people maybe f fall into because it looks better on a screen. It looks more attractive. The aesthetics of it are just nicer. 
but the functionality of it may not work as well as you desire it to work in terms of the actual interaction. Yeah, that's a great point. In a lot of ways, like digital design is a lot less restricted, at least in like design freedom. And I think like that dial you speak of, that's because it used to be one of the only ways you could kind of figure out uh, a range of values was like a potentiometer. So you needed the dial and stuff. But kind of like having a dial on an interface is kind of like having the save icon be a floppy disk, you know? Like it doesn't <laughs> yeah. really, it's just like a relic of the past, but it doesn't, like if you started from scratch, you wouldn't come up with that. Yeah. And guys, what would you say, what can designers and developers do to create great projects? So is there one thing they should both focus on at the beginning? I can jump in first. Yeah, I mean, like, my experience of working with developers has always been the kind of an interesting one. Um, I started out working with developers with absolutely no idea of what developers were doing. I thought I would just make something that looks pretty and then give it to developers and they would magically just make it happen. And then what I kind of learned over the years, or, or actually kind of very quickly, is that you give something to a developer and they go, this is way too complicated this is not an efficient way to design something and you kind of learn that there, it requires a certain amount of understanding someone else's craft in order to efficiently work on projects together and i think this is something which has changed quite a lot in the digital world over the, the last years while i've been working in it where we were originally designing screens for apps in photoshop and then kind of making many, many different screens and many, many different icons and everything kind of looked unique and different. And the more kind of you learn about how software is developed in more of a modular format, you don't want to have to repeat anything. You want to kind of use something, design something once and use it over and over again. You're starting to see, or I mean, you're definitely already seeing the way that uh, design software is built, is built with that in mind. So we build things like symbols and components which are very much used in a software world, we're now using it. I think these are elements of the software world which we pulled into the design world in order to speed up the process and make sure that the two different parties who are working together are thinking in slightly the same language. So I think this is always like a beneficial thing to have as a designer, some level of understanding of how developers are going to be working. I think this is this, I think Gray would have an uh, opinion on whether or not this applies in the hardware world in quite the same way. Um, but I think there is like, there's been a big debate the whole time I've been a designer of whether or not designers should also be able to write code. And yeah. I this, this was This was <laughs> such a joke for like, oh God, I've heard this joke so many times. Uh, <laughs> should designers code? Should designers code every article yeah. that you've ever read in the Startup yeah. magazine? Um, <laughs> my my opinion on this is, I think it again, it's important to understand what developers are doing, but I don't think it's important to be able to be a developer as well. And part of that is because I think it restricts creativity. If you're so focused on designing something which is going to be implemented in a particular way you are restricting your creative possibilities 
to an extent. And I think having maybe someone who knows nothing about software development on your team and going, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this, this, and this, where someone who is already very into development is already thinking, this isn't possible, therefore I'm not even going to entertain the idea. And this is why I think it's important to understand it, but not be constrained by it. Um, and so it's important for a designer to have tools to develop, but do they have to develop? Absolutely not. I think it's important to have these two somewhat contradicting elements that test each other, designers that push developers, developers that push designers. And that's where the really interesting part of building products actually comes from. Uh, to answer your, does that apply to the hardware space? Yes, totally, totally agree. I think it's totally analogous situation. Um, you just like, at least in product design, you just kind of have to have enough know-how to know that you're not going to get yourself into trouble down the line and kind of an idea of how it's going to work out. Um, like for instance, like if I'm designing something out of plastic and I'm not doing the final engineering, I kind of know roughly how they're going to do it, but I don't know where I'm not really figuring out where they're going to put the screws or the little, um, like ribs or any of that kind of stuff. But I kind of know, like I've given them something that they're not going to have a problem figuring out. And I think that that definitely helps. Uh, but like Nick said, on the designer side, you really, your first job is kind of focusing on what's the final outcome going to be and using that to drive how you figure it out. Um, one thing I could think of getting back to what, what should designers and developers do? The developers, uh, like at least for the hardware world that I've worked with that I really value are the ones that fill in the gaps a little bit. Um, especially on like, like intense projects, sometimes I'm rushing and I, I don't have everything kind of figured out. Um, and the guys that I will, I really like to work with and I'm willing to pay a premium for are the guys I know I can kind of give something that maybe doesn't have every little detail figured out, but they'll, they'll be able to fill in the gaps a bit and like make suggestions, you know, like, Hey, like we can't make this part like this, but if we break this up, we can make, make it like that. Like. These kinds of people I, I, I really value and I, I definitely keep track of when I'm working with them too. Yeah. It relates kind of to that understand, understanding one another and learning about yeah. the, each other's craft. Yeah, it's a little bit of like, I'm saying like, oh, designers can be lazy and developers should <laughs> guess, but like, um, like at least like, you know, um, the, at least from a designer perspective, I, I, that's super valuable. Um, to me, but like Nick said too, um, you also kind of have to, the designer has to have enough know-how to not get the developer in trouble too. Yeah. I and, think it's a bit about helping each other out, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to design something in a way which is ideally going to be easier to implement. I'm thinking slightly in your language as a developer of how this would be best for both of us to work. And it's great to get that in return sometimes because mm -hmm. I mean, I, this happens all the time with interfaces where you design an interface and then your developer goes hey how should this button look and it's part of you is going like just come up with something let's let, let's let's just move forward let's just come like work together like i'm sure you can imagine what this button looks like based on all of the other buttons that we've already designed maybe this is a oversimplification but i think it kind of just 
they are always the best working relationships where people are kind of willing to do a little bit more, a little bit out of their domain to kind of just help push the, the project forward because, you know, none of us are perfect. None of us get everything right the first time. So may I, may I sum up this, like, um, because I'm, I'm in the IT for many, many years already and I did work um, with many designers, which I'm really happy and, and proud of. And what I have learned over these many, many years is like, a, it's all about, um, I think, the dialogue, right? Between the developers and designers. Um, if this is missing, you cannot create anything which is functional and which is nice to look at, right? Um, and also timers, right? Um, and also what I trying to force and learn, teach um, colleagues, which I work with um, developers, is always to work closely on these two surfaces, if I say that. Uh, because you can come up with some brilliant, nice design, um, but it will be quite complicated or it will be really huge time effort behind it. Um, so as long as there is a, there is a relationship and, and, and communication channel um, between two, two of these um, spheres, um, together we can create something more efficient, and maybe push it to the new level because I'm also hungry of the why I like to, to work with, with, with designers is they're creating something new which is not not on the market, right? Let's let's push it um, design product to the new level. And sometimes they might end up at the concept level, right? Because it is impossible to work um, to create it. However, um, over this process, you can in small piece just you know leverage something. And design and developers, on the other hand, can, um, maybe it is not out of the box, but they can create something um, to make it real, right? So yes. it's, it's all about the, in my um, opinion. <laughs> totally. I think there's just like one point that um, you mentioned at the beginning about kind of designing something and then just giving it away and expecting it to be possible. Maybe it's not the best way to do it. This is something that we've referred to in the past as kind of just throwing it over the fence. And this is where, like, you know, I've been uh, guilty of doing this in the past, where I designed something and I'm like, okay, now it's your problem to implement it and kind of just throw it over the fence and hope that the developers can make it. But you're absolutely right. I think it's important to have that communication from, like, an early early point in order to, you know, ensure that whatever you're creating, no matter how unique and different it is, it's going to be efficient and possible to kind of build in the time frame with, kind of, with the resources that you have. Awesome. Guys, this was great. Please tell us where can people find you and how can they connect with yes, you? So we are on um, kind of like every social media platform, <laughs> most social media platforms. Um, so as we're, we're called Decibels at the moment, our website is decibels.so. And uh, on social media, we're currently uh, butterfly audio underscore. So you can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter. Um, and we're making a lot of noise on LinkedIn as well. So decibels.so and um, Butterfly Audio. Perfect. So thank you very much for today. It was a great, great interview. Yeah, I absolutely love your project. And they you eager to see where it will be in a few years. This podcast is brought to you by Elite Crew, the software house that helps designers shape the world. 
If you need help with your project or want to consult technical matters, just drop us a message at EliteCrew.io. We'll be happy to help.